Amen. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking this evening at chapter 9, but we'll be beginning in the last verse of chapter 8, as that kind of sets the tone for chapter 9, is the, is the division. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of God is alive and powerful. It is completely without error. It is sufficient and authoritative. Revelation, beginning at chapter 8, verse 13. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened and the smoke with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, 
and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this evening that You would teach us from Your Word, that You would warn us as we need to be warned, that You would encourage us as we need encouragement. We ask, O Lord, that You would, in all of this, show us the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, this is... A pretty scary chapter, isn't it? There's a lot of things going on. There is uh, a lot of destruction, a lot of pain, a lot of misery, and also a lot of great, wondrous imagery. I mean, just think about the way the locusts are described, and there are bottomless pits and angels falling from heaven. It can all be a bit much for our senses. Have you ever had that experience of getting a a sensory overload? Perhaps you've just taken in too many things and it's it's just too much and you've just got to sit and relax. That can be what this chapter is like. You see, once again, we continue down this road of describing what is happening in the world as God pours forth His judgment. This is the continuation of the trumpet's We looked at trumpets 1 through 4, and now this evening we're looking at 5 and 6. Trumpet number 7 will be to come in a few chapters. And these trumpets describe plagues. They describe great harm being done upon the earth. So what I'd like us to look at very briefly this evening are these plagues, which I want to speak about more in terms of their effect and their intention rather than their description. There is, I think, a plague of torment here in chapter 9. A plague of torment as torture and pain comes upon the world. There is a plague of destruction as a third of the earth, a third of the people who who are not sealed by God are destroyed. And then finally, there is a plague of judgment It's a plague of judgment that we see is of the making of those who rebel against God. A plague of torment, a plague of destruction, and a plague of judgment. Let's look first then at this plague of torment. A trumpet comes out once again, a fifth angel blowing his trumpet. And we are now moving. There is a change from the first four trumpets to five and following because there is now a change from an indirect judgment upon those who rebel against God to a direct judgment. You may remember that in the first four trumpets, the wrath of God was poured out in the spheres that are around people. The earth was affected. The sky was affected. The seas were affected. And this caused misery for those who rebelled against God. But it was not directed at them directly. 
But here it is. Look with me at verse 13. There is an eagle flying with a loud voice saying, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell upon the earth. Now all of this is imagery to draw our attention to what is about to come. You may wonder, why is it a triple woe? Is this something that is uh, that eagles do? Is this something that John is not sure about? Why is this repeated three times? This is a way of speaking after the ancient Hebrews. It's a way of drawing attention to something that's to come. The best way to illustrate it is that we're all familiar with when our Lord Jesus Christ looks to his disciples and what does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you. That's Jesus' sign. Pay attention, guys. And here, the cry here is, we are to pay attention to what is about to come. There is a great woe about to come upon those who rebel against the earth. And this eagle announces it. Now this, I think, is, seems odd to us. Why do eagles talk? And why is an eagle flying around here? And I think... Like so much of Revelation, you've heard me say this before, you will hear me say it again. Revelation is steeped in the Old Testament. We need to remember or know our Old Testament to understand this book. The eagle is a sign. It is an announcement of covenant curses that come upon the people of God when they rebel, that come upon mankind for rebelling against God. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 28, we hear... The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle. A nation whose language you do not understand. And when Jeremiah is describing a curse on Moab, he says in Jeremiah 48, Thus says the Lord, Behold, one shall fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Moab. And Hosea describes it in very vivid terms. Set the trumpet to your lips. There's our trumpet here. One like an eagle is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. The eagle is announcing that judgment is to come. And so this plague comes down upon mankind and it is a plague that comes from the pit. An angel falls down from heaven as this fifth trumpet is blown. Now, you may remember that the fifth seal pointed our eyes toward heaven. Now, here the fifth trumpet points our eyes toward a bottomless pit. This angel who falls down is not a good angel. Now, we think of the term angel as always applying to uh, strong beings in white flowing robes with huge harps floating on clouds, heavenly beings. But we must remember that Satan and his demons are also angels. They're just fallen angels. And so here we see an angel who falls and who falls to the pit and who has dominion, kingship, as it were. Look at verse 11. He has power and authority over this bottomless pit. And so I think this can be none other than Satan. How is Satan in control here? How is Satan in control of the pit and the locusts that come out from it? 
And I think John wants us to see that in the midst of all that is horrible, in the midst of all that is judgment, God is in control. Satan only has the power that God gives to him. And that should be of great comfort to us. You see, I think sometimes we are tempted to see God and Satan as opposing equals. We hope God wins. We know God's smarter. We're sure God's a bit more powerful. But we know it's a struggle. When in reality, God is in complete control. He uses Satan as his tool to bring judgment upon those who rebel against him. God is always in control. And these locusts then come out, this plague from the pit, are these fascinating locusts. Think about how they're described. As soon as you hear the word locust, perhaps you think of kind of disgusting bugs. You know, that's kind of the way that I view crawfish. I don't know how any of you all eat that. I just look at that and I think, I don't even want to be near it. And that's what I think, I kind of think of that as locusts. But here these locusts are described, they have crowns on their heads. They have human faces. They have hair like a woman. And the idea there is beautiful hair. And we wonder, this isn't like any locust we've seen. But at the same time, they're described in another way. They have teeth like lions. They have breastplates. They are at once seemingly intelligent and beautiful and at another time terrifying and brutal. What does this tell us about these locusts? Well, I think it reminds us that we need to understand that this is a description of the spiritual dynamics in the world. This is not about literal bugs. There aren't little tiny bejeweled crowns on top of bugs. I asked my my research assistant uh, this afternoon to help me as to what some of the popular ways of looking at this book literally are. And he said, well, you know, it's an attack of all these huge locusts in one of these famous series of books and these locusts are tiny and they attack everywhere and one of the heroes of the book captures it with a bucket puts a bucket over the locust and they're able to look and see and you see that's what you get when you take this literally it becomes a fancy it almost becomes a joke you take this plague and you capture it with a bucket what is that but you see in reality this is a description of the spiritual war that we have you see These locusts don't behave like regular locusts. Some of you know from history or from school, what do locusts do? What locusts do is they eat crops. That's all they do. They come down in swarms and they eat up entire fields. This is what we see in the eighth plague in Egypt. Now, these locusts, there's one thing that they don't do. They don't eat any crops at all. They're completely forbidden from it. They don't kill anyone at all. They're forbidden from it. These locusts are here to torment, to torture. You see, these locusts are not about bugs who eat crops. These locusts describe the spiritual attack that comes upon those who rebel against God. You see, we wrestle, beloved, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And you see, what this describes is the complete misery of rebelling against God and serving Satan. You see, because Satan is a hard taskmaster. 
He brings about torment and torture. There is distress in the life of the unbeliever. All of their relationships are marked by fear and pain. They have no real hope in the world. All of their circumstances are brought about by fear and distress. And there is no release that can be found. They can beg for death and they will not find it. Because you see, even when one who rebels against God dies, the pain does not end. It just intensifies. After death is worse than death. You see, John is describing for us the great hopelessness of rebelling against God, of being on the other side of God's wrath. And it's a description for us that should drive us to the cross, to know where we are safe, to know where real hope is found. It's not found in defeating bugs. It's not found in fighting against flesh and blood. It is found in the Savior and in the cross. It's a real spiritual battle. Because you see, even the nature of this threat reminds us of the spiritual battle that we have in our own lives. What starts out as small locusts and bugs grows into horses, as it were. And isn't that a bit what sin is like in our lives? First, it's a little and few. And then it multiplies. And then it grows. And unless we are willing to engage in that spiritual battle, to mortify sin, to fight against sin, to seek forgiveness, to be at the cross, it will overwhelm us. We need to have our priorities straightened out. To know that sin must be battled. To know that God is in control. You see, because for all the scariness of this picture, I want you to see how God is in control. The locusts are out and tormenting for how long? Five months. Now again, don't take this too literally, as if on the 150th day all of the locusts dropped dead. But it's John's way of describing locust season in times of the New Testament was five months long. That was the dry season. What John is describing for us is that all of the distress that we see about the world is of a limited duration. God has set the boundaries around it. He is in control. And this is something that we can use in our own lives and as we share the gospel with others. Because when others feel that their lives are spinning out of control, when they don't know what to do, when they're sitting in a university in China wondering if they can go on because they've shamed their parents, the answer is there is a boundary to these difficulties. God is in control. The world is not out of control. This is a limited duration. And you see, the real one who has the key to the bottomless pit, the real one who has real authority is not the fallen angel. It is Satan. Excuse me, it is Jesus Christ. Satan is not in control, Jesus is. This is the state of the world, a state where we are tormented, where we are afflicted when we rebel against God. But that's not the worst thing. Because John picks up here in verse 13, and then the sixth angel blows his trumpet, and he hears from a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying, Release the four angels who are at the Euphrates. Now, you may remember 
back in chapter 7, that these four angels were bound. They were given power, but God restrained them. In His wisdom and mercy, He restrained these angels from pouring out His wrath upon those who rebel against Him, those who refuse to obey Him. But you see, what has happened here is the lack of repentance. Impenitence brings about greater judgment. And so, when the enemies of God do not respond to the seals, when they do not respond to the first four trumpets, God continues to escalate His judgment and wrath. He continues to show them that He is in control. And so now we move from torment to destruction. This is a plague of destruction. And the images are even more vividly gruesome. Now it is not merely locusts, but it is a huge army, an army without number. Now, literally, it is 200 million strong. But again, the language here is figurative. The way you said humongous beyond all belief in the Bible is you would say ten thousands by ten thousands. And here we have ten thousands by ten thousands times two. So it's beyond anything that we could ever imagine. Two hundred million strong, an army without number, comes and sweeps in. And this would be very vivid to our original readers because some of you this morning were in Steve Mathis' class as he described the attacks on Christians in the Persian area. There was a mighty empire called Parthia that for hundreds of years attacked Rome. And they were feared because they had archers on horseback. Rome could never defeat them. The best they could do was keep them at bay. And so here the imagery of horsemen riding in and destroying all of civilization would remind, would remind the readers that no empire, no power, no kingdom is safe that rebels against God. It would be terrifying. Now again, these are not mystery horses that ride in shadows and breathe out gas that smells like eggs or, or flames coming out of their nose. This is the idea that now we have moved from torment to destruction and no one is safe outside of the defense of Jesus Christ. You see, death comes, interestingly, from the horses, not from the riders. And I think this is because this is a description of how Satan uses others to bring about his attacks. Satan destroys people, not directly, but through lies and through murderous impulses and through stoking the lust and sin of people. This is the way Satan works through murder and destruction and deceit. It's the way he worked in the garden, isn't it? When he worked to destroy Adam and Eve by lying to them and encouraging them to believe the falsehood, to believe that God had actually lied to them. And it's a reminder to us then that we must follow the truth in all of our ways because following a lie may seem good, but that path is just destruction. I want to make one other point here about this destruction that's of comfort to believers. Look at verse 13. This angel blows his trumpet, 
And a voice comes out. And where does the voice come from? It is the voice from the four horns of the golden altar. Do you remember what happened on the golden altar? Do you remember who is underneath the altar? It's the martyrs. It's those who cry out in prayer, How long, O Lord? Defend us. Save us. Protect us. And so we see here that the destructive, wrathful power of God is actually an answer to the prayer of His saints. That God fights on behalf of His people. This is something we need to remember because if we're honest, the world is a bit too big for us, isn't it? We can't conquer death. We can't conquer sickness, can we? We can't even feel in control of our job very often. And yet here we know that God is in control and that God defends us and that God acts on our behalf. God is not silent. God is not lazy. He is active in history working on behalf of His people. You see, at this point, God still has set some limits of this destruction. Only a third of the people who rebel against Him are destroyed. This is yet another call to repent. That leads us now to the last two verses, where we see our last plague. It's not a literal plague, but it is perhaps the most fearful Verse 20 tells us that the rest of mankind, that is the other two-thirds who were not killed by the plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold. They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now you would think that after all that had happened, those who were able to survive, those who were spared, would look and would cry out for help would repent and go to the Lord. But you see, I think this also reminds us of something that we see around about us. That foxhole Christianity is not real Christianity. I recall years ago when the planes flew into the Twin Towers. And when there seemed to be almost a border on a revival here in America, as people turned to the Lord and were concerned about a family and, and being faithful and aware of the fact that they could die at any time. And many were hopeful that this would lead to a genuine revival of people turning to Christ and professing Christ and repenting of their sins. And a month went by, and then maybe two. And by the third month, much of that had been forgotten. Life went back to normal. You see... It was like Noah. Noah preached the judgment to come. And during all of that, they went about eating and drinking and being merry. Because you see, there needs to be not just a change of circumstances, there needs to be a change of heart. This judgment has come about. It is horrible. It is undeniable. It is vast. And yet there is no repentance. Because you see, this rebellion is ultimate rebellion. They rebel by worshiping gods who are no gods. The works of their hands, gold, silver, and wood, gods that can't speak or eat or hear. And this is the state of much of the world today. These gods have different names. Some people worship NASCAR or football 
Some people worship the great God vacation. Others worship the great God career. Some worship the great God money. But you see, all of these gods are no gods at all. They're not worth serving. And as we are tempted at any time to forsake the living and true God, to put Him on hold while we seek others, we must repent. For no hope is found in those gods. The Lord is indeed just. The world is not steadily getting worse. The world is not steadily getting better. The gospel is going forward and the church is growing. And as it grows, resistance to the church grows as well. Wheat and tares. It is not our part to win the day. It is our part to be faithful, to trust the Lord, and to seek Him. That is what we are called to. Let's pray.